Today on Blue 58, it's time to talk about someone that everyone seems to have a strong opinion about, Joe Barry. The Packers defensive coordinator was again the brunt of a lot of criticism. Is it really deserved? And is there a case for bringing him back next year? Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink, happy to be with you here for another episode. We are going to talk Joe Barry here, but there's a couple other things I wanted to get to before we get to the Packers defensive coordinator. The Blue 58 Book Club is back up and running again. Didn't announce it with a whole lot of fanfare this year because, as a new feature for the Blue 58 Book Club going forward, this is going to be a year-round thing. At least that's the plan right now. We're going to start discussing a book. We're going to start covering a book. And the plan is to just keep this going forever. Books about football, books about the Packers. And I'm going to be doing it primarily through posts at thepowersweep.com versus talking about it on the show because talking about it on the show kind of limits the discussion of that. I want things to live a little bit more outside the show too. We are currently talking about or reading through when pride still mattered. And this past Thursday, so I guess today, um, as I record this and then couple days in the past, depending on when you listen to this, Uh, we introduced the first chapter of When Pride Still Mattered, which touches on Vince Lombardi's childhood. You've probably heard of this book. You may have read it already. I've read it in the past, but I figured it was a good place to start and kick off this uh, perpetual book club now with one of the most iconic Packers books that there ever was. And uh, I just wanted to mention a couple of things from this book uh, that we're, you know, going to be talking about in some more depth as this thing continues to unfold. I think you really see in um, When Pride Still Mattered how Vince Lombardi became who he was. Now, I'm reading ahead so I can have stuff written up every week. I'm already at his point at the time when he's at West Point. But looking back, you can really see the formation of Lombardi as a person, not just as a football coach. And the influence of his parents was huge on his life just uh, in terms of who they raised him to be. And a lot of that boiled down to religion. He went to a Catholic, you know, elementary school, grade school, high school type thing, uh, taught at a Catholic school. Uh, and just it was his a definition of who he is and his kind of structured, um, habitual, I guess, religious devotion to his faith defined who he was as a person and who he, who he became as a football coach. And I think stuff like that really comes through in this book, especially the early portions. And from there, you really see the formation of Vince Lombardi as a person. And that, I think, is something that we sometimes miss in covering modern athletics. Who you are as a person affects a lot of who you are as, as a coach, as a player. And uh, that stuff begins forming pretty early on. And you can really see that in When Pride Still Mattered. And I'll share more nuggets like this as we continue to go throughout the book. But if you are interested in following along, continue to follow the the posts at thepowersweep.com. If you want to go a little bit deeper on your discussion, uh, join us in the Discord server uh, as a supporter of our Patreon. Patreon.com slash thepowersweep is where you would do that. And uh, you can dive into the discussion there and and get more in-depth uh, maybe then just some passing remarks on the podcast or looking over some things at thepowersweep.com. I also wanted to follow up on something from the last episode, a very important coaching decision that was made by Matt LaFleur that we really didn't dive into. Uh, Scott Westfall writes in um, after the podcast went live earlier this week, 
Uh, he says, just listen to your Lafleur assessment. And one f- thing I feel gets missed about his coaching this season is why Rodgers was playing with a broken thumb. Either Love is terrible and Rodgers with a broken thumb is better, which is not awesome, or Matt Lafleur won't take charge and make the hard personnel call- calls and lets others decide. That's a problem, and that seems evident with uh, his early offensive line lineups, the limited time Wyatt saw the field over, over Lowry, and, of course, kick recurrence. Why do you think he let an injured and poorly playing Rodgers play versus putting Love in? To me, that's the biggest coaching snafu of the season. Good question. Good follow-up for me, and I, I did want to spend a little bit of time on this. So this is a big decision, I think, for Lafleur. Is it a decision he really had an opportunity to make? Uh, Matt Schneidman of The Athletic recently took a similar question to this in a mailbag column, and I thought his answer was a good summary of the issue here. He says, regarding the broken thumb slash not playing Love, I don't think anybody is going to tell Rodgers he's not playing if he's technically healthy enough, whether they think Love gives them a better chance to win or not. That's the standing, at least in my eyes, that Rodgers has in the organization. I tend to agree with Matt there. And I think that is kind of the the summary of the issue. It can be true that Aaron Rodgers is going to play whether or not it's the best thing for the team or not, and also be true that that's a huge cop-out by the organization. Because even if Rodgers is making the most money, even if Rodgers is the most important player on the team, he's still a part of the team. And the team has to come before Aaron Rodgers' pride, I guess. And I think a lot of people would say ego there, and that's that can be a, a positive and negative thing. But I think we can't re- forget that Aaron Rodgers does have a lot of pride, as every football player does, in what he has accomplished and what he is putting himself through to be out there on a week-in, week-out basis. It's not an easy thing to play every week in the NFL. And Rodgers has a long history of playing through injuries. Uh, we've talked about it before. But his his calf injury in 2014, that severely limited him that year. Uh, He's had two broken collarbones. He had the the tibial plateau fracture in in 2018, a hugely painful injury by all accounts, and one that severely limited him for that season and more. He has done this before, and it's important to him to be out there, both for the, the work that he puts in and for the work that his team puts in. But I think there needs to be more of an effort from Matt LaFleur specifically, and I guess throughout the league as a whole, of coaches trying to save guys from themselves. It might be what Aaron Rodgers wants to play in these games, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's the best thing for the team. And if you just want to break it down to Aaron Rodgers, say, okay, okay, Aaron, if the thing here is that we need you, you need a couple weeks to rest to get your thumb back, let's let's take those weeks. Let's just take the time. And then maybe it's not a long-term issue. And I think you have to wonder if love or if well if love plays just say versus the jets and the commanders and rogers comes back you know 3 weeks removed essentially from that that fractured thumb and it doesn't ever really sound like i mean there's there's broken thumbs and then there's broken thumbs it doesn't sound like it was like hanging by a thread if he can come out back 2 or 3 weeks later and be at 90% isn't that better than playing the rest of the season at 70% which kind of kind of seems like that's where he was. He was limited for a long, long time. If you can limit or limit the amount that you're a limit or limited, there's a tricky series of words for you. If you can limit the amount that you're limited, isn't that the better thing for the team and the player? I wonder 
I have to imagine those discussions took place, and we saw clearly what the Packers decided. But I kind of have to agree with Scott here that it is another miss by Lafleur. Even if nobody can ever really tell Rodgers, "Okay, we are sitting you down," walking him through that process and saying, "Look, we need you to sit down because it's better for you," and getting him to that point where you're saying, "We're not, we're not going to play you." I think is something that maybe Lafleur just isn't there yet. Maybe he's never going to get there. Could any coach do that? I don't know. But uh, boy, it's it it does seem like a miss by Lafleur. Speaking of misses like by Lafleur, let's talk about Joe Barry. There's a transition setting things up for a not so <laughs> maybe not so friendly discussion of Joe Barry. But I think that's kind of where we are with Barry because. Barry, I guess, is the biggest coaching decision we've got on on Lafleur. In a lot of ways, uh, he is his highest profile hire from outside the organization. He's the highest profile hire that he really didn't have a super long connection with before. I mean, compared to Adam Stenovich, Joe Barry's a, a relative newcomer in Lafleur's career. Stenovich goes back to when Matt Lafleur was in Houston, and Stenovich was there as a practice squad player. That's in like 2008 or so. They have a long relationship together. Barry only dates back to what was it when Lafleur was in um, Los Angeles, 2017, 2018. So it's been a while, but they've been coworkers most of that time since then as defensive coordinator and head coach too. Barry bears the brunt, I think, of a lot of um, criticism that maybe should be going to Matt Lafleur instead. And I think we'll we'll get to why there in a second. But let's talk about Joe Barry through a series of questions. First and perhaps most important question, how was the defense in 2022? You've got raw numbers and you've got advanced numbers. Scoring-wise, 17th in the league. Right practically smack in the middle. Averaging 21.8 points per game allowed. In yards, they were 17th. Takeaways, 12th. Trending up, but not quite as good as they were in 2021, and we'll circle back to that too. First downs allowed just 10th, passing yards just 10th, but passing yards per attempt, they were 26th, and that is going to become a common theme here throughout a lot of the rest of the numbers. Uh, Rushing yards, 26th in the league. Yards per attempt, 28th in the league. Scoring percentage, how many drives were opposing teams scoring on? 10th in the league, not too shabby. Third down conversions, this one surprised me. Eighth in the league. Fourth down conversions, though, 23rd in the league. Now, turning to the advanced numbers, Football Outsiders DVOA numbers, this is basically perf play efficiency on defense. They rank 20th, and you get a really, let's call it the modern split, and I'll tell you why here in a second. Pass defense, pass DVOA, they were 8th in the league. Run defense, they're 31st in the league. And I call that the modern split because, generally speaking, I think the conventional wisdom on how you play defense now is that the pass matters a whole lot more than the run. So a lot of teams are trying to just load up on stopping the pass and, for lack of a better word, just conceding the run in a lot of different ways. Is that the correct approach? Well, looking at the evidence for the Packers, I think you can say no league-wide. I'm not really sure. But it seems like a very extreme version of this. The Packers clearly have devoted a lot of resources to stopping the pass. They've spent a lot of money on Jair Alexander and draft capital, if you include Jair Alexander and and Eric Stokes and Darnell Savage. 
have spending money on Savage, spending money on Adrian Amos, spending money on Rasul Douglas. They've thrown a lot at um, at that part of their defense. They are trying to stop the pass and giving it all right back on the run too, and giving up a lot of opportunities on fourth down as well when teams can't quite get all the way there on third down. Uh, ESPN's pass rush win weight, win weight, win rate, and run stop win rate. Just throwing those numbers out there. Uh, pass rush win rate, they win at the 12th highest rate in the league. Run stop win rate, 31st in the league. They're not stopping the run. Their guys aren't getting off blocks against the run. And I think that points a lot to uh, the um, level of defensive talent that they have on the defensive line. Going, I guess, even more advanced and more granular here, uh, expected points added per play on defense. They rank 27th in the league overall. In dropback passing, they were 14th. In rushing EPA, they were 31st. Now, that's a whole bunch of numbers, but I think it paints a pretty consistent picture. By and large, the defense was okay. They were pretty good against the pass and bad against the run. That seemed like a fair assessment of where the Packers were in 2020. Just okay at best, which, given their level of spending on defense, is a bit of a problem. But at least they were pretty good in most circumstances against the pass. Outside of week one, I don't think they were getting super gashed against the pass. Nobody, But saying that nobody really put up numbers like Kirk Cousins and, and Justin Jefferson in week one doesn't really say all that much. I mean, had like an all-time great game or one of the all-time great games there. Uh, but other than that, they weren't getting gashed, but they just gave up so many consistent gains on the ground that it was hard for their pass defense to matter because even if you're you're only giving up say, just as a for instance, if you're only giving up seven or eight yards per pass, that might be a good number by itself. But if you've already given up five yards on first down on the ground, that's just an automatic first down. It's a bit of a problem. Compared to 2021, this is when I think people start to have issues with Joe Barry. Because scoring per game is almost identical. Their league rank was 13th, which was better than 2022, but they gave up the exact same number of points, like to the exact point, 371 points allowed on defense two years in a row. What are the odds? But they gave up 21.8 per game. So no real change there. Ranking change, it's just the league changing around them a little bit. Other defenses got better than the Packers, which I guess might be a recurring theme here too. Yards allowed, they were at ninth last year, so a significant drop. Takeaways, 8th to 12th. Yep, significant drop there too. Their first downs allowed improved from 13th in 2021 to 10th in 22. Passing yards stayed the same. They were ranked 10th in 21, 10th in 2022. Yards per attempt was much better in 2021. They were 5th in yards per attempt allowed last year. That dropped to 26th in 2022. Rushing yards, uh, that's too to add a big turn in in 2021 to 2022. Last year, they were 11th in rushing yards allowed, down to 26th this year. Yards per attempt, slight improvement. They were 30th in yards per attempt allowed last year, but 28th this year. Getting to the more advanced stuff, I think it gets a little bit worse for the Packers comparatively. Their scoring percentage got worse in in 2022, though the league changed around them a little bit again. They were 18th in the league, but allowed scoring drives on just 36.6% of their opponent's drives. That was actually worse in 2022, though their number, their overall ranking improved. They allowed scoring drives on 38% of opposing drives in 2022. So got worse, 
but their ranking improved. Defense has changed around them. Third down conversions allowed. They were better in 22 than 21. They ranked 24th last year, 8th this year. Their fourth down defense, though, much better in 21 than 22. Seventh in 21, 23rd in 2022. Overall, I think the defensive picture was about the same. They were 22nd in DVOA last year, 16th against the pass, 28th against the run. Ballpark, those numbers are, are pretty similar, though the pass defense much better this year, which I, I don't think I would have guessed. Uh, just ballparking it before I started prepping for this episode. Their pass rush win rate, win rate and run stop win rate was um, almost inverse of where it was this season. They were 27th last year and 18th uh, versus the pass and run in 2021. They were 31st and 12th in 2022. So a bit of a flip-flop there. EPA-wise, better last year. 19th overall. Uh, 14th against dropback passing, 31st against the run. Uh, so the the rest of the league changed around them a little bit there too. Their their rate stats, their rankings were about the same against the pass and run, but what it meant to be a good defense changed from 2021 to 2022. And I think if there's a, a big criticism that I have of Joe Barry, it's that the the league did change around them. The Packers didn't seem to change at all. And I think there's a few reasons for those differences. For one, I think you saw a big regression from Devondre Campbell. Uh, He was just not as good this year as last year. And I think that shows up against the run and against the pass. Their defensive line talent was basically the same. Um, And they also didn't get some help from the offense. We'll talk about that in, in a second here. I think we need to talk a little bit about what these numbers may be hiding before we get to some conclusions or some things that you may not blame on the defense. When you are performing matters. Um, Some of these overall rankings don't really reflect the important parts of the year. For instance, we talk about expected points added per play in terms of defense. Weeks 1 through 9, the Packers rank 17th. And weeks weeks 10 through 18, they ranked 28th. I would argue that the Packers needed their defense the most in weeks 1 through 9 because that's when the wide receivers were the worst. That's when the offensive line was the worst. And that's when Aaron Rodgers was the most hurt. When the Packers needed their defense the most, they were at best just okay. 17th by EPA allowed. In weeks 10 through 18, their ranking actually dropped to 28th. So as the Packers' offense started playing better, the defense started playing worse, which I think is a a big point against Joe Barry if you're trying to argue that he was a part of the Packers' turnaround down the stretch. Because the numbers show, actually the defense was significantly worse as the Packers' offense got better. And on top of that, as we've talked at length, The Packers' defense was playing bad quarterbacks during their big win streak. The Packers' defense played worse against bad teams as the Packers were winning. To me, that seems like a big big red mark against Barry. We also have to talk about close games or or when games were close. Uh, One of the great things about uh, expected points added 
is that you can refine it really precisely since it's all based on individual play data. And I use the I use Ben Baldwin's site, runningbacksdon'tmatter.com, rbsdm.com actually is the actual site. Um, you can filter things pretty tightly um, to look at individual game situations. So one of the things that you often want to do as you're looking at, at defensive and offensive performance is how teams are performing in specific game situations. And one of the best things to do is look at how teams are playing in basically neutral situations when, when nobody really has an advantage, basically outside of garbage time. So I restricted it to when games were between a 30% chance of either team winning and a 70% chance of either team winning. Essentially, think of this as being when the game is, is pretty tight, when neither team has an overall advantage. I thought it was important to note how the Packers' defense were playing in those tight game situations. In those game situations, the Packers were the 24th best team in the league. Essentially, the team defense was at its worst on defense when the games were closest. That, too, I think is another big indictment of Joe Barry. It's also an indictment of the Packers' defensive talent. We'll get to that in a second. If you also want to throw a couple situational examples out there, and I'm sure there are more, the Packers gave up 24 points to Bailey Zappi this year. Patriots starting quarterback gets hurt. In comes Zappi. He gives the Packers everything they can handle at Lambeau Field. Packers have to win in overtime. That should not happen. I think you could also be critical of the late-game defense against the Lions. I think overall the Packers' defense was pretty good against the Lions, looking back on it a couple times. I'm talking about the Week 18 game. The, the Week 9 game, too, they only allowed 15 points, but the Packers still lost. The Packers needed to stop late after Aaron Rodgers throws the interception trying to target Christian Watson. They couldn't get it, and playing off coverage on 4th and 2 is a pretty sure way to not get a defensive stop. I'm sure there's more you could throw out there. I think at a point you get to just kind of splitting hairs about the Packers' defense. Before we talk about whether or not we should really want Joe Barry back, I think we need to give him a couple of outs here. Were there any aspects of the defensive performance that you can't really blame on Joe Barry slash the defense as a whole? The personnel is a problem. And as we talked about, I think in the last episode, a frustrating truth about the 2022 Packers is that the roster really just wasn't that good. I think top to bottom, this roster was not as good as a lot of us thought. They weren't as good as they were in 2021. Most of their core players were a year older, and they didn't get better performances out of a lot of those guys either. You saw some significant regression, I think, from Devondre Campbell, which is not all that surprising given where he is in his aging curve as a linebacker. For a guy whose calling card essentially has been size and athleticism, as that athleticism wanes, what do you have as a player? Rashawn Gary's injury is a significant factor for the Packers' defense, too. Because, uh, I I mean, normally I don't like to put a lot of credence into, well, they were hurt. Yes, that is true, but everybody's hurt. But Rashawn Gary's injury was just so important to this defense that I don't know if you can really say, well, they couldn't scheme up pressure outside of of Rashawn Gary, expecting things to be approximately as good no matter how good your schemes are. So that, that is a big blow to this defense, and that's it's not Joe Barry's fault. If you were relying on Rashawn Gary that much, okay, maybe you can have some criticism there. But again, I don't think that's Joe Barry's fault either, that he doesn't have the horses 
at edge rusher beyond Rashawn Gary is not really a Joe Barry problem. You can also point to the defensive line just being bad. He can only play the guys that he's got. And when Brian Gutekunst thinks that Dean Lowry and Jaron Reed are key parts of an NFL defensive line, there's really only so much that Joe Barry and Jerry Montgomery can do to counteract that. The defensive personnel was not great. They spent a lot of money on it, but a lot of it wasn't very good. There are also some reasons to think that the Packers' defense performed poorly because the Packers really weren't playing very well in complementary football this year. The Packers' offense did not do a whole lot of favors for the Packers' defense. To that end, the Packers' defense had the 19th worst starting field position of any defense in the league, on average. Teams were starting their average drive from their own 28.8-yard line, 28.9-yard line. The Packers essentially were giving up, if, you, if, your average, um, if, if your average team has about 10 drives a game, the Packers, were, the Packers defense was essentially down 40 yards already just on an average drive. San Francisco, just for comparison, uh, was number one in the league. Their opposing, their average drive started on the 25.3-yard line. Compared to 2021, the Packers defense saw a significant drop there. They had the eighth best opposing starting field position in the league in 2021. They started on their own 27.7 yard line. That is, I think, a small but significant difference. The Packers defense, Packers offense was spotting opposing teams a lot of yards that the Packers defense was unable to really counteract. So those caveats aside, what do we think of Joe Barry? What is the case against him? I think there are three things that you really can criticize Joe Barry for in in 2022. The first and probably the biggest one is that there was really no substantive improvement of the Packers defense from 2021 to 2022. And that is a huge problem given a couple of things. For the Packers were already spending quite a bit of money on their their defense in 2021, and that only went up after they re-signed Jair Alexander, and they re-signed Rasul Douglas, and they re-signed Devondre Campbell. The personnel was basically the same. They just paid them more. What you're saying there is we think we're good enough. We have good enough players to be a better defense with just a year, what, in Joe Barry's system that we didn't have before. And we're just going to improve that way and add in a couple couple first-round picks. They weren't substantively better from one year to the next, despite keeping essentially their core defense and then adding in some new pieces. If you're saying that the defense was going to improve just by bringing back the same group of guys and they didn't improve, I don't know who that falls on other than the defensive coordinator. Because the GM is saying the people weren't the problem. And shoot, I'll even spot you a couple more. The coaching staff is saying, okay, well, we think this guy is the coach to coach him up. And then the defense doesn't improve. Who do you point at? Who do you point at? I think it's got to be Barry. So if you're criticizing the Packers defense for not getting better from one year to the next, all the people were the same. They added in some new pieces. They kept the same coach. What, what is the conclusion here? Secondly, I think you, you should have some real concerns about their personnel management. Devontae Wyatt is the first example that comes to, that comes to mind, but he's not the only one. I mean, you couldn't get him off the bench to save his life 
for a lot of the season. Now, some caveats there. There were some small injuries. He did have to miss some time in the middle of the season because he had the, the birth of a child. But even so, the Packers' defense and their defensive coaches did not get Wyatt up to speed quick enough. Whatever the reason was, they didn't get him out there. And we saw when he did play late in the season that it was pretty good. If it took you that long to get him up to speed and you can't exclusively point to injuries, I think some of that falls on the coaching staff too. Then finally, this may not be the best example because I am not a tape person. I have not dived deep enough to have a formative opinion on this, but I've read enough from people who I do trust and have seen enough analytics to say that Joe Barry runs a pretty static, unchanging scheme. It really didn't change at all until late in the year, by which point it was functionally too late for the Packers to really save their season, as we saw with one game knocking him out. I mean, they lost one game in the last month and a half of the season, and that was enough to kill him. I don't. I was unable to find the source back, but I read an article towards probably the three-quarters mark of the season where they were talking about the analytics that showed player movement on defense by alignment and showed that the Packers' defense ran basically the most play-in, play-out static scheme in the NFL. Guys were just going out, lining up in the exact same spots, play-in, play-out. And compared to the rest of the league, there was just a wide gap. The Packers just weren't trying anything different and were yet still surprised when they got the same results. Again, I don't know where you lay that blame other than Joe Barry, the guy who says, I don't really know how we fix this either in a press conference. So I think it's pretty well established by this point that I'm not a big Joe Barry fan. What do we do then? What is the case for bringing him back? First, I think you say continuity. This is a bad argument, but I think it's, it's pretty much the only one you can really lead off with if you're, if you're trying to say, okay, here's why we need to bring Joe Barry back. You say, we're going to stick with this guy. We're going to be in year three of this scheme. We're going to have everybody up to speed. Eric Stokes is going to be back. Darnell Savage is going to be in a new role. We're going to upgrade at safety. We're going to have Quay Walker in year two. We're going to have Devontae Wyatt in year two. We're going to have Rashawn Gary back uh, from ACL. It's going to be better just because we're bringing all those pieces back. I would be more convinced by that argument, which I'm not sure is a good argument at all to begin with, if we didn't already do that once and get basically worse or stay the same from where we were in 2021. If you're arguing for continuity... It would be a lot nicer if we hadn't tried it once already. But you can also argue that they're going to get improvements from young players. That would be the internal narrative I would run with if I was saying, okay, we need to bring Joe Barry because, back because he's going to be able to work with the young guys. And I think there is some merit to that. Eric Stokes got off to a really bad start in 2022, but I think they were working with their defensive backs and using them better by the end of the season. He still has all of the physical talent you could hope for. He can still run like a deer. He's still got good size. I don't think he's a lost cause. I think you can get some improvement there. Darnell Savage did seem to improve when you put him in some better spots in 2022. Uh, Rashawn Gary, scary as it may seem, I think was still improving through 2022, right up until when he got injured. Uh, Quay Walker, I think, got better over the course of the season, though the uh, the ejection stayed relatively the same. Uh, Devontae Wyatt obviously improved as the season went on. 
if you're Joe Barry, you're saying, look, I really want to work with these young guys. I think I can get a lot more out of this this defense when we've got year three Stokes, year two uh, Quay, year five Darnell Savage, year two Devontae Wyatt. I mean, if I'm Joe Barry, I'm saying that's the core of my defense in a lot of ways. That's my, if nothing else, my core second tier of guys. You layer in Jair Alexander and Rasul Douglas and Rashawn Gary and Preston Smith and Kenny Clark on top of that, maybe add some more defensive line talent. I should be able to put together a pretty good defense. If these young guys that are not my stars but are like my second line improve, and I think I can help them improve, I think we'll be better in 2022. That's what I would say if, if I'm Joe Barry. But I think there may be another person we need to really think about here as a voice on defense, and that's Matt LaFleur. Because looking at Joe Barry, I wonder if it really isn't just Matt LaFleur kind of running the defense. Because look back at the Joe Barry hire. We've criticized it for many other reasons, but let's just lay out the bare facts. He did not have a long history of schematic innovation. He was hired in Detroit to run the Tampa 2. He was hired in Washington to run a version of Wade Phillips' 3-4 defense. And he was hired in Green Bay to run Vic Fangio's version of the 3-4 defense. He's never been a guy who's like on the bleeding edge of defensive innovation. He's the guy you bring in because he knows guys who have innovated on defense. He also had no history of success prior to the Packers. None. The Packers ranked 17th in points allowed in 2022 in the league. And that is the second best mark of Joe Barry's career, tied with the 2015 Washington team that also ranked 17th in points allowed per game. The only other season he's been better than that was in 2021 with the Packers when they ranked 13th in scoring defense. He has literally never coordinated a good defense. So I don't know what you were hoping for here other than that he knows the Fangio scheme. On top of that, we see that Joe Barry has never really hired or attracted outside talent either. Look at the Packers' current defensive assistants. Jerry Gray, the defensive backs and pass game court, defensive backs coach and pass game coordinator. He is a holdover from Mike Pettin. Jerry Montgomery, who is the defensive line coach and run game coordinator. He is a McCarthy holdover. Ryan Downer, the safety coach, is a Pettin holdover. Kirk Olivadotti, the linebackers coach, is a Pettin holdover. Wendell Davis, one of the quality control coaches, is a Pettin holder. The only guys that Barry has brought in are Jason Rebrovich, the outside linebackers coach, John Donovan, who is a senior analyst on the defense, and Justin Hood, who's another quality control coach. This is not, Joe Barry doesn't have his guys here, whatever that looks like. It's guys that Matt LaFleur wanted there, guys that Matt LaFleur held on from the Mike Pettin era, or even the Mike McCarthy era. Maybe Joe Barry isn't the guy that we should be mad about at the Packers uh, with the Packers' defensive struggles. Because it seems like Matt LaFleur has actually been very involved with the Packers' defense. How it's configured, who coaches it, and who that coach is hiring or retaining. Maybe we've been mad at the wrong guy all along. Maybe Joe Barry isn't a great defensive coordinator, but maybe hiring him to try to be one is the real problem that we've had here. And I think that's a slightly different criticism than saying Joe Barry isn't a guy that you should hire to be your defensive coordinator, even if that part is true. It's more that Matt LaFleur wants to be too involved in the defense. And I think that is the sign of a coach who is maybe a little bit out of step with where he needs to be as far as being a truly great coach in the NFL. 
because if you're going to be involved in every aspect of your team, you had better be a Bill Belichick-level defense. Bill Belichick can be involved with the offense and the defense and the special teams because, well, for one thing, Bill Belichick cut his teeth as a special teams coach. Then he learned under uh, he learned under Bill Parcells, one of the great defensive minds of his era, was was his defensive mastermind. And then he's had the time to pick up and learn how to develop an offense and have one of the great quarterbacks ever to run it. He has learned all this stuff and been involved in, in different areas. Matt LaFleur doesn't have that experience, but he's trying to be involved, I think, in these areas too much. And I think that is where my ultimate criticism on this has kind of worked out because as I worked through prepping for this episode, boy, I I came away a little bit conflicted. Yeah, Joe Barry hasn't been great, but some of the numbers do look okay. And, you know, looking at stuff like the coaching staff, what has he really been allowed to do anyway? Were you just bringing him in because he had a copy of Vic Fangio's playbook and he was a good hang? I mean, more and more, it seems like, yeah, that was the decision. And so I think all of this, the longer and longer it goes, just reflects more and more poorly on Matt LaFleur. Because Joe Barry has been the guy he's always been. A guy who can run somebody else's scheme and peek at a middle-of-the-league defense. And if you knew that going in, That's kind of on you, isn't it? Thinking out loud at this point, but maybe we need to do the Matt LaFleur episode over again. That's all I've got for you in this episode of Blue 58. I appreciate you listening in. I would appreciate it even more if you would take a second and share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it too. That's going to help more people find the show and get more involved in this conversation that you and I are having about the Green Bay Packers, which in turn is going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.